Mormonism 101 for Teens is a valuable resource for anyone wanting a simplified view of the Mormon religion from a Christian perspective. Mormonism 101 for Teens is available at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore in Salt Lake City or mrm.org. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Hoping you're having a very pleasant Friday. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, the founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. Today we conclude listening to a lecture given by Dr. James White, the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, at one of our Compassionate Boldness Conferences held here in Salt Lake City. I had asked James if he would address the charges many critics of the Bible have often raised against the Bible, specifically the New Testament, and how those concerns are unfounded. If you'd like more information about James White and his work at Alpha and Omega Ministries, I encourage you to check out their website at aomin.org. That's aomin.org. And now, can we trust the New Testament responding to Article 8? How many of you read or saw The Da Vinci Code? Okay, all right. What was the basic plot of The Da Vinci Code? that the Gnostic Gospels were the original Gospels and that Constantine had gathered them all up and he had burned them and he had written the original Gospels, the, the Gospels we call the original Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, to present Jesus as a divine Savior. Uh, this only demonstrates that Dan Brown can make millions of dollars off of people's stupidity. Almost everything in the Da Vinci Code was exactly backwards of the actual facts. It's the Gnostic Gospels that present Jesus as an ethereal spirit divine being and not as a human being. It's the canonical Gospels that talk about Jesus as being truly human. He entered into human flesh. Uh, but aside from that, the whole idea was that Constantine was making all this stuff over time and uh, that uh, what we have today has been tremendously tampered with. The reality is it's vitally important to realize the transmission of the text in the New Testament did not follow a phone game single line. Not only are written documents less liable to corruption than what is whispered in the ear, but the phone game involves a single line straight transmission. The New Testament originated in multiple places written by multiple authors with books being sent to multiple locations. What does that mean? Well, this multifocality leads us to the final considerations that demonstrate the bankruptcy of the modern attacks upon the New Testament. To make specific changes in a text like the New Testament, which originally circulated as a group of texts, not as a single body, would require a centralized controlling body that could make wholesale changes in these widely dispersed texts. You'd have to have some overarching control of these widely dispersed texts. It'd just be required. You'd have to have it. But the fact of the matter is, no such central agency ever existed or could have existed. Christianity was a persecuted religion made up mainly of the lower classes. 
There was no central authority that could ever have gathered up all the texts and made wholesale changes. Such was impossible in the earliest days of transmission, and given that we have such ancient texts now, such as P46, P75, so on and so forth, obviously could not have happened at a later point without giving clear evidence of later tampering with the text. In fact, we can prove beyond all doubt that this kind of corruption did not happen. Since papyri have been found that date back to the 2nd century, and that only within the past 100 years, had any later centralized organization sought to alter the text, those later texts would show stark differences as older and older manuscripts are found. But just the opposite has been the case. In other words, in the last century, back in the 1930s, when we began finding all the papyri manuscripts in the New Testament, if later alteration had taken place, like Joseph Smith said, then those earlier and earlier manuscripts would demonstrate that what we have later on had been corrupted and changed. Just the opposite took place. As we found more and more of these papyri manuscripts, our understanding, knowledge, and certainty of the New Testament text only grew. It didn't become less. Remember Shirley MacLaine when she did her out on a limb thing where she's staying out on the, on the beach and she's going, I am God, I am God, I am God. And I, I almost felt like, at first I said, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. But then I said, by the way, the Mormons have that copyright, you're in trouble. But remember that? And she was channeling the spirit Ramtha and all this silliness. And she'd run around saying that the Bible used to teach reincarnation, but they took it out of the Council of Constantinople and all the rest, that kind of silliness. We can demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that that kind of claim is absurd. We now have entire manuscripts that predate the Council of Constantinople. We have manuscripts that predate Constantine. That's what I loved about the Da Vinci Code, is we have all sorts of manuscripts. Well, they decided to call Jesus God at the Council of Nicaea. Oh, really? Then why do we find Jesus being called God in, in the early church writings 200 years earlier and manuscripts 200 years earlier as well? Amazing what you can get away with these days. We can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that that theory of later corruption and later change simply has no foundation whatsoever. It just simply is not true. So all allegations of purposeful corruption, such as those made by Muslims, fall upon the mere consideration of the historical context and the data itself. The rapid widespread distribution of the New Testament manuscripts in the first two centuries precludes any purposeful centralized corruption. It also gives rise to the need to study the relatively small number of textual variants because the people that were copying it were just plain old Christians like you and me. But this leads to another important point. When scribes copied their texts, they were very conservative, often incorporating marginal notes into the text since they could not be sure if the note was original or not. Why is this important? Well, I'll tell you. This means they even preserved mistakes or silly readings. Now, this may sound bad at first, but consider what it really means. The New Testament text is tenacious. Tenacious. What does that mean? That means that readings are preserved in the text. All readings, including the original readings, are still a part of the manuscript tradition. So even when we have two or three possible readings at a point, John 1.18 is an example. One of those two readings is the original reading. The original readings are still there in the manuscript tradition. As it has been well put by one gentleman, it's like having a 10,000-piece puzzle and having 10,100 pieces. 
The issue is identifying the 100 extra. It's not like having 9,900 pieces and you wonder what's missing. That is the issue that we face, the transmission of the text in the New Testament. That is why the believing textual critic can persevere in even the most difficult variants. One of the readings is the original. I want to give you a key theological example to sort of hang your hat on. I know some of you have the Lucy Linus effect right now anyways. You know what I'm talking about, the hair is blown back, way too much information at one shot. But I want to give you an example. Look in your Bibles at 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16. Compare the King James Version and New American Standard at 1 Timothy 3.16. King James, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. New American Standard, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, there is a major difference between saying God was manifest in the flesh, and the difference is not manifest and revealed. That's just two different English ways of translating the same Greek word. That's not the point. The point is one says God and one says he who, and that's a big thing. It's a big thing whether Jesus is called God in 1 Timothy 3.16 or whether he's he who in 1 Timothy 3.16. And God and he who do not look a whole lot alike, or do they? Remember, this text was not transmitted in English. It was transmitted in Greek. Let's take a look at it. Here's where the difference is. If you looked it up in a modern Greek text, the modern Greek text says, ha sephanorothe and sarki, he who is manifest in the flesh, but it also tells you. Here's theos, that's in Sinaiticus and the corrector, the corrector of Alexandrinus, secondhand of C, D, 1881, the majority text, manuscripts of Vulgate. Here's where the text is. I mean, it's not like we're hiding anything. Anybody who wants to know what's in the text can find it in a modern Greek text. My text down here in the written form has the same information in it. This is the uh, Logos uh, library version. But again, God, this does not look a whole lot like this, or does it? Let's take a look at it as it would have been. Remember, what's the form of text it was written in? Unsealed text, unsealed or majuscule, capital forms. There's the difference between the two. You see, back in those days, the word theos is called a nomina sacra. Theos, kurios, Jesus, pneuma, these were all nomina sacra that were abbreviated in the text of the New Testament. And what you would do is you would put the, the two letters and then you put a line over the top of those two letters to indicate the abbreviation for these common words. So the word theos would abbreviated theta sigma with a line over the top. That's God. But the word for has, the relative pronoun he, who, is omicron sigma. Now, what are you writing on? You're either writing on papyri. What does papyri have in it? Little lines. Or you're writing on vellum. Look at the front cover of your Bible if it's leather. What does it have? Little lines. You're reading someone else's handwriting when you're making your copy. And that guy may not even be alive anymore for you to go back and ask. This is a wonderful example of a textual variant where it's not someone going, oh, I'm going to change the theology of the Bible. <laughs> the reality is anyone can see how a scribe could confuse these two words. Now, they're, they're actually very evenly matched in the manuscripts. And any modern translation is going to have a note along the side that say, some manuscripts say, that's what we need to do. That's how we should indicate these things. Really quickly, in summary, 400,000 variants, 99% of them inconsequential. 
most thoroughly documented work of antiquity, the most manuscripts and the earliest manuscripts, spread over all the world quickly, no controlling authority to edit them. Any later editing would stand out clearly in comparison with ancient manuscripts. I really, really, really hope that all I've done is whet your appetite. It's not an easy area to read in. I have done a book that's used as a textbook across the country in introducing textual critical subjects. It's on the King James Only controversy. There are other books available. We live in a day where the Bart Ehrmans are going to be on CNN all the time and where our young people are going to be studying under the students of Bart Ehrman. We have to know where our Bible came from. The days of our grandparents where they didn't have to know some of these things have passed. We need to know. And when we do know, knowing gives us all the more confidence in the text of the New Testament and thankfulness to God for how he's preserved his text. Let's pray together. Indeed, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. As the psalmist of old prayed in the 119th Psalm about his love for your word and how more precious than gold it was to him, we pray that by your spirit you would cause your word to be precious in our hearts so precious that we would be willing to do the work that is required to give an answer for the hope that's within us. Give us opportunity to bear witness of your truth in our society while we still have that freedom, Father. And even if that freedom is taken away, may we count the cost. Thank you for this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.